but it is it is good uh, to as I was thinking about this and Greg and I had lunch uh, this week and we were talking about this series and the the moment that it clicked for me is the, the last couple of weeks as we were talking through walking through the valley we were talking about the way in which God is present and the hope that we receive as we um, walk with God and God walks with us and the hope that we have. And this Advent season, I'd like us almost to turn our attention away, not, not away from, but, but where the attention previously was on what we receive from God, this, this next four weeks, I'm hoping that as we study Isaiah, we will look to Jesus and we will see this one who we anticipate coming again and the character of this God who we worship and we serve. And so let me pray for you, Greg, and then it's yours. And, and to do the slides, you just control it yourself. So, uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are so faithful in coming to us, that this season we are able to remember um, this is not about our faithfulness in waiting, but about your faithfulness in coming. And so we thank you that you have come and that you will come again. I just pray for Greg now as he opens up the word and speaks to us that we would uh, hear the things that you would have us hear, that you would speak to our hearts as well as our minds, and that this would uh, just transform us more into the image of your son. Be with Greg, give him the words that you want him to speak, and the strength to say it. Amen. Check, check. Can you guys hear me? Awesome. Great. Well, everyone, um, so Thanksgiving, oh, it's a little, little resounding, but that's okay. Um, Thanksgiving has come and gone, right? And uh, the turkey leftovers in the fridge uh, have been eaten, hopefully. Um, and our neighbors to the south have finally had their chance to celebrate the turkey dinner, um, which means, yeah, the season of Advent has come. And uh, so how many of you guys are legitimately excited um, to listen to Christmas music? Anyone? Okay, yeah, got uh, That's a good, good amount. Um, how about eating Christmas baking? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely there. What about eggnog? Any eggnog fans? Oh, a few less, a few less. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm usually good for one eggnog a year, and then that's about it. I'm good to wait for another 364 days before the next one, so... Um, but yeah, how about on the flip side, how many of you are just looking forward to December 26th when you can take down that tree and peace can finally reign in your home? Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I saw that one. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think all of us have a different relationship with Christmas. Um, for some of us, this might be the best time of the year, while for others of us, you know, Christmas just isn't that big of a deal in our homes. Um, and I get that not all of us are excited about Advent, but my hope is that as we start this series, um, our hearts would be drawn into the story of Jesus, and um, yeah, that we would just find an excitement, and not for presents or carols or Christmas lights, but just a renewed excitement for that story that beats um, just at the heart of the world, um, and that didn't just happen 2,000 years ago, but a story that um, is here, and it's right now, and it's in this very room, and so if you guys have your Bibles, I just invite you to open them up to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Um, so, yeah, so this is our theme verse here, and it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
eternal father, prince of peace. So this will be our theme verse, not just for today, but for the next three Sundays leading up to Christmas. And so each week we'll be looking at one of the four titles given to this promised son to be born. And this week we'll be looking at Wonderful Counselor. Now, uh, I'm sure this verse is familiar to a lot of us. I, I think I hear it quoted at least once every Christmas, and I'm pretty sure quite a bit more than that. Um, and so as a way of kickstarting our Advent series, though, I just thought it might be good just to take a little bit of time to dig into the context of this verse before diving into the title of Wonderful Counselor. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, we did a quick recap of the book of Isaiah, and so I'm going to try to do a version of that, but just on the first eight chapters, uh, just to bring us all up to speed. So essentially, God's people, the Israelites, had been saved from slavery in Egypt, and God had given them a land of their own to live in. And while living there, they were to represent the nations around them with God's wisdom by following the gift of his law. But instead of following the path of life that he had chosen uh, for them, they instead chose their own way. And the leaders of the nation of Israel became corrupt and prideful, allowing idolatry and injustice to rule their lives instead of God. And so leading up to Isaiah 9, we see that though God gives his people many chances, they just won't listen. And so God promises that the walls of his vineyard in Jerusalem will be broken down. And it's into this mess that God calls out the prophet Isaiah and meets him in a vision where God is enthroned, surrounded by these crazy heavenly creatures called seraphim. And so we're just going to take just a quick look at this vision. So in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the, the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple, and seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings, with two each covered his face, and with two each covered his feet, and with two each flew. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am I, send me. And it's in this grand throne room scene that God sends Isaiah to preach a message about the blindness and deafness of his people, and God promises that these spiritually deaf and blind people will, surprise, surprise, neither listen to Isaiah nor see their own sin and rebellion and turn and repent. And you can just sense, it's going to be a tough preaching career for Isaiah here. So our, our verse about a promised son to be born, interestingly enough, comes right before two, or right after, sorry, two chapters which also promise the birth of sons given unique names. And we actually looked at one of them already this morning. Um, so the first one in chapter 7, you probably recognize that one. It's a promise given of a son to be born as a sign of hope, of God's protection named Emmanuel, God's presence, God's wi- God is with us. And the second is in chapter 8, is less familiar, and it's the promise of a son to be born to a prophetess, and he is born as a sign of approaching military destruction and darkness. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce that name, um, but as we enter into chapter 9, we are then left walking the uh, valley and wondering, well, which is it? Is this a promise for hope and light, or is it a promise for destruction and darkness? And to these, Isaiah says, yes. Um, So, and as we end Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah says, they will pass through the land, dejected and hungry, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will become enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. And this is describing a people 
journeying through the valley of doubt, despair, and anger. But thankfully, Isaiah continues, and we have chapter 9. And chapter 9 is like that purple candle that's lit. And we have here, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation, you will increase their joy. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of the harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break their, uh, the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot to the marching warrior and the roar of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So while we started walking through the valley of shadow, this promise brings God's people into the light of Advent. Here, Isaiah paints a picture of the lands of Zebulon and Naphtali and the coastal regions that are under a great darkness. But there is a promise of a light to come. I'm not sure if you notice the theme in verse 3, but it says that you will multiply the nation, you will increase their joy, they will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of the harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. <clears throat> so there is a distinct message of increasing joy at what God will do in bringing this light, this light harvest, and freedom from oppression. And though Israel has rejected their God and foreign armies are coming, one day soldiers' boots and cloaks will be burned in fire as war is done away with, and God will be victorious. And how can we know that this will happen? Well, oddly, it's the birth of a royal child. But how can such light and freedom and joy come from that birth of one child? And this is where we see that it's not his birth that will bring this about, but who he grows up to be, the man behind these titles. And Matthew in his gospel recognizes that Jesus as the promised light, this son who's going to be born from Isaiah, because Matthew directly quotes from this chapter when Jesus began his ministry. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. This happened so that what was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those sitting in the land of shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so as Jesus walks through these regions, preaching the light of the good news of repentance, he is fulfilling the words of Isaiah. He is calling people out of darkness and back to God. And what's his reasoning for his call of repentance? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's, that's important. It's, it's about a coming king and kingdom. It's not a movement or a trend or a cult. This is Jesus calling people to join with him as he ushers in a full-fledged kingdom. And every kingdom needs a ruler on whose shoulders its government might rest. Jesus is the promised royal son to be born. But how does he fit into the name Wonderful Counselor? Well, it's interesting to note that 
Earlier in Isaiah, God specifically promises to remove from Jerusalem all their counselors. It says, For behold, the Lord of God of armies is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the entire supply of bread and the entire supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the esteemed person, the counselor and the expert artisan and the skillful enchanter. Jerusalem is in need of a counselor, but what kind of counselor will the promised Messiah be? And what does Isaiah even mean by the title counselor? Now, when I see that word counselor, I think most of us tend to picture someone sitting across from us in a comfy chair, taking notes, asking us questions for roughly an hour about our mental, social, and emotional well-being. And this concept would have been foreign to the biblical authors. That specific practice of counseling and therapy, it just didn't exist yet. And so when it comes to the Hebrew word for counselor, what do the biblical authors mean by it? Well, when King Solomon, the wisest king of Israel, had passed away, um, his son Rehoboam took over, and his people asked Rehoboam to lighten the load that King Solomon had placed onto their backs. And it says that King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? So the bolded words there are the Hebrew word for counselor being used. And if you look at other instances of how this word is used, um, it, just like with Rehoboam, almost every time it comes up, it's talking about either an advisor of a royal court or specifically the advice or direction given by an advisor to someone in authority and uh, how to lead wisely. And so the word is also used not just for requesting royal counsel, but executing that counsel. And as we see later in Isaiah, it says, for the Lord of armies has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand... Who can turn it back? So it's about being a part of a royal council which plans with the king on how he should rule. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of our key verse, it makes it just a little bit clearer. Um, there it has, instead of wonderful counselor, it has the title messenger of the great council. So what type of royal counselor then is the Messiah? Um, what is he like? If we follow that messianic thread through Isaiah, just a couple chapters after our key verse, we get here in Isaiah 11, it says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the promised Messiah in the royal line of Jesse will have the spirit, the Holy Spirit on him, the spirit of counsel. And so while he can counsel and advise us, his people, in wisdom, giving just judgment, when we look at how counselor is used in the biblical sense, it seems to carry that meaning of being a part of the king's council. So if the promised son is a royal ruler, does he then just counsel himself? You know, like how does that, how does that work? And this is where if we go to Psalm 89, we see that God himself has his own heavenly counsel. It says there, The heavens will praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who amongst the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. And that phrase, holy ones, in the Old Testament is used to talk about divine beings and angels, um, like angels or seraphim, as we saw um, with Isaiah. 
And so God himself has his own kind of heavenly courtroom where he seeks counsel. And we see this counsel, if you remember, in stories like Job. Um, There's even stories in the book of Kings. And um, looking at even the New Testament, after Jesus' resurrection, where does Jesus end up? If we look back to last week, we looked at Romans 8, and it said, Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So Jesus is able to join into that heavenly assembly with God the Father in his throne room and speak on behalf of his people. And we see a glimpse of this intercession, or an early glimpse of it at least, when Jesus prays from the cross, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now there's one word in that title, Wonderful Counselor, that we haven't had a chance to look at here, um, and that's the word wonderful. And this could just be me, but I feel that the way we use wonderful tends to be kind of like the way we use ketchup. We just, we put it on everything. We think it goes with everything. Um, A spouse can be wonderful, but so can a piece of toast and a cup of coffee, right? And let's be honest, the more sleep-deprived we are in the morning, the more wonderful that coffee really is, right? So... It's a word that we use to attach to so many different things that I feel it kind of loses its meaning and its its potency. Um, And so let's just look at a few verses in the Bible on how that same word is used and try to recapture what Isaiah means when he says, Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Now the author of one of the Psalms, while thinking back to the story of Exodus, says, he performed wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. And here in Psalm 89 that we already looked at before, right? The heavens will praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Whereas it will say later in Isaiah, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So being wonderful in the Bible is less about that deliciousness of a cup of coffee, and it's more about the sheer force of God's might. It's about that amazing, saving arm of the Lord that liberates slaves and brings down exalted empires. It's the snake-crushing, sea-parting, mighty acts of God, the removal of mountains and the lifting up of valleys. And when Jesus walked this earth, he also performed many wonders and signs that pointed toward God's saving power. He healed the blind and the deaf, right? Rebuked the wind and the waves. And in his death and resurrection, the greatest wonder of God was revealed as Jesus' faithfulness bought back a people out of slavery under death and sin and into newness of life and freedom, out of walking the valley of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So if he is our wonderful counselor, that doesn't just mean that he's delightful to be with or simply good at giving advice, It means that he is powerful. He can work mighty acts while bringing God's saving plans into motion. And that's not just 2,000 years ago, but today. So Jesus rose so that he might ascend into heaven, and even now at this very moment, Jesus is standing at the Father's right hand. He is a part of God's council, and they are planning wonders untold for this world. But now let's just pivot a bit and look at a different question. So if Jesus is our wonderful counselor, what is our role in all of this? 
Are we meant to watch and worship as our wonderful counselor does his work, or is there something more for us to do? And as the story of Scripture unfolds, it seems that God's counsel has more vacancies than just a spot for one counselor. In the first chapter of Isaiah, when God talks of restoring Israel, he says, Then I will restore your judges as at first, your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. So here God says that he will restore your counselors, not one, but many. And God does not merely want to restore a kingdom so that only his son, the Messiah, can take part um, in his counsel. Rather, the model that we see that Jesus leaves us when he ascends into heaven is he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of all nations. Right? So in spite of Jesus being one given authority, he entrusts that message of discipleship and baptism with his followers, letting them go in his authority. We are given his authority so that we can play a pivotal part in his plan. We can be that representation to the nation surrounding us of God's wisdom and power by following the gift of his son. And way back in the book of Genesis, in the time of God's first promise, God and two angels visited Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, who was himself promised uh, a son uh, unexpectedly. And after they ate food from Abraham's tent, and promised again that Abraham and Sarah in their old age would have a son. Um, they left his camp, and while leaving, God asked his, his two angels, he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations will be blessed. And after asking this question, God does not hide from Abraham what he plans to do. Instead, he invites Abraham into his council and tells of his plans to wipe out the city that's filled with injustice toward foreigners. And because of God's invitation, Abraham, like Jesus in Romans 8, is able to let his voice be heard and intercedes multiple times on behalf of the people. And God hears his intercession and extends the range of his mercy each time. And if we go back to Isaiah, when Isaiah was called to, um, to the people of Judah, notice how God asks his question. He starts by saying, whom shall I send? And then asks, who will go for us? Which is plural. So God is asking who, who to send, not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his council. Much like Abraham, God is allowing Isaiah to be a part of this council. Through a vision, Isaiah has been brought into God's throne room, into his council, where God and his heavenly beings confer and make decisions. And God's question is not, it's not a demand, it's an invitation. And Isaiah responds. And just as Jesus steps into that role of wonder-working royal counselor, we as his faithful followers are called to follow the way of Jesus that Jesus has made for us to go into God's throne room. As we read the scriptures and pray and worship together as a church, we too get glimpses of heaven, and God speaks to us, directing how we can partner with him in this world. The word for prayer in the Bible actually directly connects to the word for mediation. So in a biblical sense, whenever someone prays, they are seeking mediation. It's, it's a call for God to rescue oneself or to intercede to God on behalf of another person and ask him to step in and make things right. And you see this in the prayers of Daniel, and it's in most of the Psalms, and, it's, and we see it directly in Abraham's conversation with God. And as we pray, and I admit that I don't, I don't do this as much as I should.
But when we pray, we are entering into God's throne room, joining with God's counsel as we seek his kingdom to be realized in our lives, just as it is realized in heaven, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our wonderful counselor has paved the way for us to boldly approach the throne with him, and not just to seek God's counsel, but to humbly offer our own, and yet to do so while submitting to, not my will, but yours be done. And in this Advent season, let's wait on the Lord to act with power in our lives. And as we do so, may we find that our lives are intertwining with that wondrous, Red Sea-splitting, cosmos-shattering plan of God that he and his son have for this world. And as we go into this week, let us remember that our wonderful counselor who has gone before us into the heavens, he lives and pleads for us. And let us trust that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart.